uh, chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, God, thanks uh, that we have the chance to do this, uh, that we can dig into the word. Thanks for Exodus 32 and, and what's going on here, and I pray that you would... Um, Teach us from it by your spirit. God, I know that I'm inadequate, my words are inadequate, but let my words and let the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing to you, God, today as we gather to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, hey, like David said, my name's Thomas, in case you didn't know. I'm a covenant member here. Kent has the week off. He asked me to preach a few weeks ago. And I obliged, uh, one, because this is a text that, like, if you've been around the church forever, it's pretty common. Like, I don't know, I'm an old millennial, if that's a thing, right? Like, I'm, like, right in that transition period between Gen X and, and the millennials. So we had this thing when I was growing up in church called flannel graph. I don't know if you, like, some of you guys are like, I, nope, not totally. So it was this brilliant, groundbreaking technology where you would have a piece of felt on a board, you have little characters made of felt, and you would just stick them up, right? They defied gravity, right? This was one of the stories that we had Sunday mornings in Sunday school that was flannel graph, presented in flannel graph and Technicolor. Uh, so, like, like, this is just one that always comes up. Anytime you're in Sunday school, it happens, all right? The background we had was the same. So the golden calf was on the same rock that like, later on Jesus would be standing on and teaching on. And when we got to Jonah and the whale, the fact that we only had this meadow scene got really confusing. So, right? Like, but a lot of people are familiar with this. Even people who probably have not been in church at all in their lives. So we're going to read this. We're going to go through the text. We're going to unpack it. And then at the end, we're going to kind of talk about how it relates to us. Because a lot of us are probably going, I've heard this before. You, if you read the Bible, you just kind of gloss through it really quick. You read it, okay, it's there, it's done, it's over. It doesn't really have anything to do with me because it's about these ancient people thousands of years ago who were doing something and like it just, it happened and now I'm here now, right? So we're going to go through this and we're going to talk a little bit about it. Uh, But to give you some context really quick, right, we're in Exodus 32, we're coming up towards the end of Exodus. Um, In Exodus 19... God brings the Israelites, his people, to Mount Sinai, where he's going to encounter them. Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments. So like in 19 through 24, he goes and he gets the Ten Commandments. He gets the law. Uh, 
and then they have this confirmation ceremony where Moses comes down, he reads the law to them, he says, hey, this is what's going on, do you guys agree that you're going to follow God's law? If you follow God's law, and you promise to follow God's law, he will promise these things to you, right? That your life is going to go well, that he's going to take us to the promised land, that we're going to be prosperous, and he's going to bless us because we're his people, and we're the ones, the, the nation that he will bless the world through. And they say yes, and they offer sacrifice, and there's this weird thing where, like, he sprinkles blood on the people, and, right, like, we don't get that because that's totally far removed from us. Um, and so... In 19 through 24, that's what happens. Then Moses goes back up on the mountain. And if you were here last week, Kent talked about the tabernacle and about worship. And so uh, Moses goes back on the mountain and God gives him all of these commands and these detailed plans on the tabernacle and how he will be present with his people. And he's up there for 40 days. Uh, And things down below do not go so well to put it mildly, right? This happens towards the end of that 40-day period. And we see, like, just in these six verses, the Israelites break the first three commandments, right? Like, they, like, don't have any other gods, don't make a graven image, don't take my name in vain. And they're just like, hey, like, we remember that we had all this sacrifice and this pledge and this promise, but, well, it was kind of, we weren't very, well, we're going to unpack a little bit about what's going on there. So, Uh, Let's just look at verse 1 really quick. We're going to start there. When the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Right? So immediately they start wanting other gods because of Moses' absence. Because for them, Moses was God's representative, right? He was the supernatural representative of God before them. He had brought them out of Egypt, had brought them. He had done it. Moses did. Even though it was God who was doing it the whole time. God was working through Moses. But now that Moses has been gone for almost 40 days, they don't know what's going on. They're probably feeling anxious and scared. He's probably up on the mountain, dead, He's not coming back. Or like Ashton Kutcher's waiting behind a rock and we're going to get punked in a minute. Like we don't know what's happening. What's going on? They want this representative, right? This was common in the ancient Near East. And even, I mean, like even today there are still cultures that, that have many gods who would inhabit some form of the created order or something or... Um, you know, an animal or the trees or the river or the field or the sky or the storm, right? There were gods of war. There were gods of agriculture, of baby making, of selling goods, right? Like they just created all of these representatives, these deities, and then also representatives in the form of statues of idols who would make that intercession. And for them, that was Moses. And he was gone now. And they don't know what's going to happen next. Because they're not close to Egypt. And they're not close to anywhere else they know of. Again, they're in the point where they're like, we're just going to die. Here in the wilderness, nothing's going to happen. So they go to Aaron and they say, make us gods to go before us. 
And it's ironic because they've already heard the law. Right? We talked about this Exodus chapter 24 ceremony that happens. They've heard the law commanding them not to make other gods or graven images. And at this time, while they're down here creating a whole new religion and a whole new form of worship, God is on the mountain with Moses going, all right, now listen, when you guys worship me, this is what I want you to do. We're going to have this tabernacle, and it's going to be set up like this, and you're going to make the curtains like this, right? Like, so there's this juxtaposition of God's giving Moses their worship playbook, and they're down on the mountain, at the bottom of the mountain, making their own. Verse 2, so Aaron says to them, well, let's back up really quick. Again, it's because they attribute the acts of God to Moses. If you look towards the end of, like, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt. Not God, right? God brought us out of Egypt using Moses. That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking he was the one who had done it. And Moses is gone, and so God is gone. Right? In some ways, they're disappointed in Moses because they, they refer to him very carelessly. This guy Moses, oof, that dude that brought us out, right? they're afraid, and they're anxious, and now they're alone, and they're drifting away. Um, so like, I grew up in Indianapolis. When I was eight or nine years old, uh, I'm the oldest of four kids, and we were at the state fair, and my parents, for some reason, thought that I was responsible enough to take care of two of my younger siblings as we went off to do kids stuff and I don't know this was a long time ago like almost 30 years so like channel 4 was still just primarily a kids channel and had like all the cartoons on on Saturday mornings you guys are looking at me like you don't know what's going on it was a thing all right just so you know a little Indianapolis history for you Um, so there was all like all of this Ninja Turtles and all this other stuff on the stage they were bringing all these characters out people dressed up in costumes and me and my sister and my brother were there, and we go back to my parents, and my mom goes, where's Joseph? And I'm like, with us? He's not with us anymore, right? So what had happened, we, we eventually found him um, after a lot of panic and crying, and uh, yeah, it was just nuts, but uh, he had seen a balloon, it was not even his. And I promise I'm going to make a correlation to what's going on in Exodus. And he walked away, right, because he saw this balloon. We're there, and he just decides he's going to go after this balloon. Ends up behind, like, some food truck and is freaking out because now he realizes that he's not where he was supposed to be and he can't find any of us. And, uh, like, the lady from the food truck took him to the police. He ended up getting a stuffed animal out of it, which... I think he might still have to this day, like, yeah, almost 30 years later. Um, but, like, like Israel was like that. It, like, they just kind of drifted away because they saw something that, that caught their eye. They were kind of feeling like, what's going on? We don't know. Let's start to look at all these cultures around us. What, what did we used to do when we were in Egypt? What did we see them doing when we were in Egypt? So they, they just kind of follow this thing that they, they were used to. And so in verse 2, Aaron responds to them. He says, okay, go ahead. Let's do this. Take off the 
earrings, the rings of gold in your ears, uh, in your wives' ears, in your sons' and your daughters' ears, and bring them to me. Right? So like we see Aaron here is like totally failing, absolutely, in the absence of his brother. He's not leading the people well. And it's interesting because he totally goes on his own on this. Even though in, in uh, Exodus chapter 24, he had 72 other guys who were elders of the Israelites. And like he, so he had this huge council of people that he could have gone to, but instead he goes on his own and he goes, well, if you're saying you want to do this, let's go ahead and do it. Again, there's irony here because Moses is on the mountain and, and God's telling him, listen, the high priest, the person who's going to represent me to the people is going to be your brother Aaron. Meanwhile, Aaron's down on the ground going, all right, guys, we're going to do this. Let's like, bring some gold. Let's melt it down, and we're going to make something out of it. We're going to make this idol. So he's like, he totally shirks his responsibility. And in Exodus 24, there's this, this point where he and these 72 other guys and his brother Moses, they go up the mountain a little bit, and God shows himself to them in this beautiful picture, right? They said that they saw the Lord, and under his feet were sapphires as clear as the sky, like as blue as the sky. God's just walking on them, and they have a meal, and they drink, and they get up, and they worship him. So Aaron has this in his mind, and this going on, and instead decides to go this way. Doesn't remember what God had been doing, right? Like, this is not the thing you would want your future employer to see come up. This is something you leave off of your resume. Because to this point, his track record was pretty good. Right? If you remember way back in the beginning of Exodus, when Moses says, I don't really know if I can go talk to Pharaoh. And here are all of these reasons. And the last of which was like, kind of stutter. I don't talk so well. The words don't do the things. Goes, okay, well, I'll send your brother Aaron. Right? Go talk to your brother Aaron. He'll speak for you for me. Here's Aaron. Before Pharaoh, performing miracles with his brother, leaves Egypt, goes to the Red Sea, sees God at work, gets to Sinai, sees God at work. So you could see as God reveal himself, like literally sees God. And then starts to do all this crazy stuff, going along with the people, right? This is the tweet that he would not want to come up in an interview. There's a little bit of hope there, though, because Aaron really screws up at this point. But still becomes high priest. God still forgives him. He still redeems him and still uses him for his purpose. Verse 3, So all the people took off the rings of gold in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, 
These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So now we see, like, they've taken it a step further. Not only, like, let's have a plethora of gods, let's start creating this new religion, this new faith, and we're going to have multiple gods, and there's going to be God who brought us out of Egypt, and there was something with him and Moses, but now we're going to have other gods. Um, they go a step further and say, let's start making idols. Right? Let's make this graven image, second commandment broken, done. Right? They're just blowing through them like it's candy at Halloween. Right? And they take these rings of gold. And in Exodus chapter 12, if you remember, if, or if you read it, or go back and read it later this afternoon, this was the treasure of Egypt. When they left Egypt, God goes, hey, go ahead and leave, um, but before you go, ask your Egyptian neighbors for silver, gold, precious jewels, clothes, food, and so they do, and the Egyptians give it to them. So God has given them all of this treasure, all of this spoil, for them to use, in some ways later you'll see, for the tabernacle, but also to set them up for prosperity as they go to the promised land, and they are wasting it on making this idol. They, yeah, they, they just waste God's provision. And they make this idol, and Aaron shapes it and forms it and makes it into a golden calf, which was probably a bull, right? Because in the, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this was a sign, a symbol of strength and power and, and virility and fertility. Uh, so it was, it was common, right? The bull was common in ancient Near Eastern religions to be worshipped. But specifically in Egypt, there was one god who was represented by a bull. It was the Apis bull. And it represented the incarnation of the god Ptah. So they're, they're coming out of Egypt and they've seen all of this going on. And there was specifically one god represented by a bull, by a cow, that, that was the incarnation of Ptah, who was the creator God. He realized the world by his thought and created the world by his word. He was called the beautiful face, the Lord of truth, the master of justice, the one who listens to prayers, the Lord of eternity, right? Like it kind of sounds familiar. So they're drawing a connection between God who's brought them out of Egypt and God who has set himself up and has said he is these things start drawing this parallel to Egypt. Now, a lot, like at some point, some people, this is a side, I've got a couple side sermons, by the way. So this is one of them. Um, some people would look at this and they would go, oh, this, like, none of this is real. None of this, like, none of this is real. Because... You're just pulling all of this stuff from other mythology and other religions and kind of forming it and shaping it and turning it into this thing with Israel and Jesus and, and none of it's real. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to bring any doubt to you because, and this is one of the things, I've always loved this idea. C.S. Lewis had an essay he called Myth Became Fact. And he said, we must not be ashamed of the mythical radiance resting on our theology we must not be nervous about parallels in pagan Christ. They ought to be there. It would be a stumbling block if they weren't, right? So, if, like, 
and, and in a few other things, I feel like he's also said all of this all points to a single truth. All of these stories, all of these mythologies, there's a bit of truth in them because there is truth in God. And all of these people, now here we go, right? This wasn't accidental. It was intentional of Aaron to choose this bull specifically. In Genesis 10.6, one of the sons of Ham, this is after the flood, one of the sons of Ham is Egypt. In Genesis 11, the people are scattered after the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 37-50, through 50, Joseph's story comes up and Israel goes to Egypt. They're distant relatives. So it's not surprising for them that they would take the God that most closely resembled theirs and used this Egyptian mythology surrounding it. But they start to go adrift. They start to fall away, pull in all of this other stuff surrounding it, all this other baggage that the Egyptians had built up around it. And they say, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Right When God alone acted on their behalf, when it was just God revealing himself and delivering them from Egypt, all of a sudden now they start to equate this calf, this bull, with the God who had done so many things for them already and delivered them in so many hard spots. And they start ascribing power to this new false god. So in verse 5, Aaron sees this, and he builds an altar. Right? When Aaron saw this, he built an altar. And he made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day. They offered burnt offering, and they brought peace offering. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So they take the name of the Lord in vain. Because now they're equating not only God's power, but also God's presence with this idol. And Aaron says, tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord in front of this giant golden statue. And he builds an altar, and they sacrifice before it. They start applying the weight of God's glory to this created thing, this thing that they made. And this is, again, another juxtaposition of you have the altar here versus the altar at the tabernacle where there was no statue. There was no representation except through the priest, right? Because it was just God and his people and in some ways nothing else. There was nothing else that they would have created that would have, that would have represented him before them. And so they start sacrificing and eating and drinking and playing. Right? They have made a new religion. This is nothing at all what they had promised to do in Exodus 24, what God had called them to do in Exodus 24. They have a meal in the presence of their new God. Right? This is a direct parallel to to that chapter in Exodus 24 where they have this consecration ceremony and they make sacrifices. What sacrifices do they make in Exodus 24? They make burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then Aaron and the elders go with Moses and they have a meal. What happens here? They make burnt offerings 
to the calf. They make peace offerings to the calf. And then they have this feast before their new God. And they get up to play, right? They indulge themselves. Rose up to play, right? It's, it's a euphemism for like sexual activity multiple times in the Bible, the original word. So they end up doing what other cultures do, doing what the Egyptians did, doing what they would have seen the people, the nomadic people in the wilderness do, seeing what, uh, doing what uh, eventually when they get back to the land of Canaan, like what the people there would do. They indulge themselves. They create this religion that's completely based on this selfish indulgence and make worship about them and about their satisfaction. Right? So, like, why do we talk about this still today? Why? In 21st century Western culture, idol worship probably seems like something we've done away with. Right? Like, we have committed ourselves to reason and science, and we don't have idols, and we don't have any of this silly myths, and we don't do any of these things. But we see ourselves here. I'm in Exodus chapter 32, because I see myself doing these same things. Uh, John Calvin, the French-Swiss reformer, father of Calvinism, I put in air quotes because I don't think he was, re- he was never like, hey, let's start this whole thing about me. Uh, but one of the things he said was that man's nature, so to speak, is a perfe- perpetual factory of idols. Our hearts are idol factories. We just keep churning them out, right? And when one doesn't satisfy us anymore, we just make another one and we go to the next one and we focus our lives on these things to try to find control in an unstable world, right? I think at the bottom of it, when we face our anxiety and fear and we feel like we're out of control, I, like, I know what this feels like. I've gone through this a ton. We want control. We want stability. We desire those things. And it probably goes back to the garden when we had stability in our relationship with God and in relationship with each other, but that was broken. So now we start making other things the source of our stability and the source of our satisfaction, right? Like a quick list, like we can make food, social media, television, cars, phones, computers, technology, houses, lawns, uh, like that's probably none of us are quite there yet, but I know a guy who grounded his daughter for like a month for leaving her bike on the lawn, right? Like he worshiped his lawn in a lot of ways. Maybe you made an idol out of family or out of having kids or maybe out of love or romance or sex or marriage. Maybe it's power or success or money or career. Maybe it's politics, right? Like look at our political landscape right now. Side sermon number two. Both sides, left and right, have become so self-focused and divided from the others, we're setting these politicians up as idols. Right? Donald Trump is an idol. Elizabeth Warren is an idol. Bernie Sanders is an idol. I've been a hardcore libertarian for a while. Gary Johnson is an idol. Right? Like, we make them the poster children of our ideology. 
we've made our political ideology our identity to the point that when someone doesn't agree with us on something, it is a personal attack. I had a great conversation with a couple of guys last weekend. Taught, like, we just talked about this. And like, as Christians, one of the things that, that we talked about was as Christians, we should be in a position to be outside of that and have a, conver- have a different conversation. We should be able to ask different questions about motives and intentions and point people to Jesus in all of that. We take these things into ourselves. We form them and we shape them and we turn them into our God. We elevate them to a status that they were never meant to hold and suddenly we end up in this cycle of despair because it fails to satisfy and so we keep going back for more and it fails to satisfy, and we keep going back for more. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, you know, he says that we take good things and we make them ultimate things. Right? Or we make them God things. We set them in the place of God. Why? What's so attractive about it? Uh, I got nine points and then I'm going to be done. I really do. But they're quick, I promise. This is all from, uh, from Doug Stewart's commentary on Exodus. Right? I'm just going to read it. I lifted this straight off of a blog post on the Gospel Coalition's website, and it, it was specifically talking about what was attractive about idolatry to the Israelites. But I think a lot of it is still applicable to us today. One, it was, it was guaranteed. If you do the right things, you get the right outcome. Right? It was guaranteed. Who wouldn't want to just, you know, show up, say the right things, and God shows up? It was selfish. Right? In the ancient world, people thought that uh, the gods needed humans to feed them, and sacrifices were made because gods were hungry, and you could get what you wanted from the gods because you sacrificed to them. It was easy. You needed to show up and offer the sacrifice, but it was very, there was little very demand for ethical and moral uh, um, what's the word? The word just escaped me. Standards. Ethical and moral standards. There was no personal sacrifice. Long term the way that God calls us to live a life of obedience. There was, like, you didn't have to do that. It was easy. You just did what you wanted, showed up, made the sacrifice, went back home and kept doing the same thing. You just had to put meat on the altar. It was convenient, right? Like, in the ancient world, religious franchises were everywhere. You could go anywhere and find a different God to worship. You could make a God out of anything. It was normal... So many cultures were doing it. It was logical, right? It made sense to them that there were gods in many different places. It was pleasing to the senses, right? There was an appeal to the aesthetics and the beauty of what was going on. There was entertainment in it. And it was indulgent, right? This point specifically is like meat in ancient culture, 
was very rare. You would usually only do it when you sacrificed or had some huge celebration. But in the same way, like, how many times do we indulge ourselves in specific circumstances that we wouldn't normally do? We would enjoy the feast ourselves. And the last one was it was erotic, right? There was a sense of pleasure and a, a, a good feeling that you would get that would come out of it. Not only was it indulgent, you would satisfy yourself, but there were, it was all about the feeling and like, let me feel something, please, because I don't feel anything else. How do we break this? How do we stop this cycle? I have great news for you. You can't. You can't stop this. It will always chase you down. But there's one who can. And it's only Jesus who can stop this. If you still have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. I'm going to read this. mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when the Israelites are trying to make something for themselves and make something of themselves and when we're trying to make something of ourselves Jesus the God man makes himself nothing think about that this idol this bull meant to represent the incarnation of God was really a way for the Israelites to control God. Jesus, who is God incarnate, makes himself nothing, becomes a servant, and dies on a cross for us. He is pierced for our transgressions to make our hearts whole again, to bring us back to God, to be that intermediary that we are waiting for and looking for. And it is only when we trust him that we start to break that cycle. And it's not going to be easy, I promise. Right? But that's why every week we, we celebrate communion. As a way for us to remember what Christ has done for us. As a way for us to remember what God has done for us in Christ. To set ourselves up. To constantly be reminded. And also to meet Spirit of Christ at the table. We're going to have, I'm going to pray in a minute, but we're going to go do communion. Uh, there's going to be stations up here. Gluten-free is going to be over on the screen side. Another one over here, one in the back. I don't have a challenge for you. My encouragement to you would be as you think through this, as you get ready 
we take this together as a body, as a community, they would think through, what are the things in my heart? What are the things in my life that I might be giving God status to? And ask God to free you from it. Let's pray.